You're listening to. Hey everyone, you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today to discuss our August 2023 book club pick, Bitter Medicine by Mia Tsai. Um, as always, the Books and Boba podcast is supported by our listeners at patreon.com slash booksandboba. Um, if you'd like to support us as well, you can head over there um, and become a patron where you get access to our members-only Discord as well as our special monthly bonus Boba Chat episodes. And yeah, we've been having a lot of fun engaging with our listeners on Discord, so we hope you join us there as well. Um, but with that said, um, Rira, did you catch the blue moon yesterday? I did. It was humongous. <laughs> I didn't realize it was like a special full moon when I was driving home from downtown. It was a super moon and a blue moon. And yeah. I was like, wow, very like fantasy like, which, you know, kind of fits the vibe <laughs> of this book. Like, I'm not big into like astrology or astronomy. Which one's the one that's about horoscopes? Astrology is the signs, and then astronomy is the actual like science, uh, study of right. stars. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not big in astrology, I'm sh- but I'm sure that moon has some significance or whatever. I'm sure too. <laughs> I mean, I don't really believe in astrology that much, but it is fun. And if you live in LA, there's a lot of like psychics and uh, boutiques <laughs> that do like readings for you. So that's always fun. Yeah. I mean, I always see you post some astrology memes on your Instagram stories. Yeah, because they're pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Speaking of spiritualness, um, yeah, our book this month is a contemporary urban fantasy romance. And I didn't realize how much romance it was until I started reading the book. Um, Did definitely catch me by surprise. But um, yeah, let's get into it. As always, we will be spoiling the entire story of our book club pick, including all plot twists and character beats. So if you have not read the book and you care about that kind of stuff, push pause right now, go read the book. It's a pretty breezy read. And then you can come back and listen to our analysis. But to get started, um, Miro, can you start us off with the book summary? All right. As a descendant of the Chinese god of medicine, ignored middle child L was destined to become a doctor. Instead, she is underemployed as a mediocre magical calligrapher at the Fairy Temp Agency, paranoid that her murderous younger brother will find her and their elder brother. Using her full abilities will expose L's location. Nevertheless, she challenges herself by covertly outfitting Luke, her client and crush, with high-powered glyphs. Half-elf Luke, the agency's top security expert, has his own secret. He's responsible for a curse laid on two children from an old assignment. To heal them, he'll need to perform his job duties with unrelenting excellence and earn time off from his tyrannical boss. When L saves Luke's life on a mission, he brings her a gift and a request for stronger magic to ensure success on the next job except the next job is hunting down Elle's younger brother. As Luke and Elle collaborate, their chemistry blooms. Happiness, for once, is an option for them both. But Elle is loyal to her family, and Luke is bound by his true name. To win freedom from duty, they must make unexpected sacrifices. Yeah, so this is a, like, a Shansha, which is Chinese fantasy, meets Western fantasy world, um... And like I really dug it, but I know you have you. We've talked before the uh, the show, and you have your own thoughts about um, how successful the world building was. So I'm curious what you thought of this book in general. It's going to be one of those episodes, folks, where uh, Marvin and I have diametrically <laughs> opposed opinion uh, opinions. But uh, yeah, I listened to this book on audiobook for like maybe like 25% of it. And then I was like, okay, I'm starting to get confused. I feel like I'm missing some of like the world building. Maybe some details got lost. So I actually bought the book to actually read it along with the audiobook. And I was still very confused <laughs> in the <laughs> in the end. Um, 
I think it, the book really did take me by surprise. I didn't expect that much romance either, despite the uh, summary. Um, it got steamy real fast in in like some chapters. So that was, I don't know, that, that was like a switch up that I did not expect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you were expecting like the, these characters have like chemistry, they like each other. And they're obviously attracted to each other. And then and then you hit the point where, you know, they invite each other over to their place. And, like, the environment is ripe for romance. And instead of fading to black, Mia um, shows us what they do in great detail in, like, romance novel form. And it's it was really interesting because I also listened to this book on audiobook. And because I had a couple really long drives this month. So um, I, like, I put it on to listen to when I drove. And I was actually at a drive-thru when the love scene hits. So I had to quickly pause. Why does this always happen to you? Didn't this happen <laughs> for the kiss quotient Every as well? single time. Yeah, it's like, oh, no, I need to pause it so that this poor fast food worker does not think I'm a total degenerate pervert. I mean, I've read some really filthy stuff in my life. So, um <laughs> I was just like, dang, like, Mia, you've read some, I, I feel like you've read some fanfic back in your day, <laughs> because some of the smut scenes, I was like, oh, okay, like, this is a yeah. lot more detailed than I'm used to, but I dig it. I mean, that's an inter- interesting point, because this book definitely felt like, it did feel a little like fanfic, because it is a mashup of different schools of fantasy, right? You have both the Chinese Shangsha and the Western, like, fey, fairy fantasy, and I don't know. I, I really dug it. I thought, you know, um, I thought it was a really interesting way to, like, create a world where all of these fantasy worlds exist and co- and mingle with each other. So I'm curious, like, what you didn't like about the world building. Well, I think you should start. I say start <laughs> with the um, start with the compliments. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I just I just liked it. I can't ex- really explain why. I just really dug it. This is exactly like what I like uh, when I read like contemporary fantasy. Like um, I'm a big fan of like the Nasuverse like fate series, like shenanigans where it's like magic in like the contemporary world with like factions and like where all fantasy and myth are real. Um, and so I think, I don't know. I'm not prescribing what might have gone wrong because I have read the reviews for this book on Goodreads and it does seem like the the strongest line between people who like the book and didn't like the book is the um, not the world building per se, but the descriptions of the world um, and or the explanations for it. And I think for me, because I am both familiar with Changsha and Western fantasy tropes because of my lifetime of reading, um, you know, Western fantasy and engaging in like sea dramas and um, to be honest, a lot of webtoons live in this space as well. Um, I was able to pick up on like what the author was trying to do without too much mental effort. But it did seem like that wasn't the case for all readers, uh, which includes you, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, I like I honestly do not know where to start with <laughs> with my assessment of this book. Let me just say that just from the premise and the cover and, you know, the romance aspect of it, I really, really wanted to like this book. I I was rooting for you, but it just um, it just didn't align with, I guess, like my tastes in urban fantasy or contemporary fantasy. Um, I'm not familiar with Shansha, but I know that genre like magic is used differently. Magic is used through like pills and uh, like objects rather than, you know, like a wand or just like hand waving. Um, I understand that. I mean, we. We read A Magic Steeped in Poison by Judy Lin, and we've had her on the show. And that's like, it's a similar type of magic system where you have like Chinese traditional art mixed in with like supernatural stuff. Um, and I, I did like the idea of calligraphy being tied to how L uses magic and how that's used as like healing magic. I feel like, you know, we kind of see that in a lot of like sea dramas and also like animes when it comes to, uh, you know, like characters. Uh, yeah, it's also I don't know, a very like, Western like fantasy thing too, like sigils and like magic circles and things like that, right? Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Um, but like... 
I mean, was it just you felt like it wasn't explained enough or was it the way that it was explained? I don't know. It's it's like both. I don't really need that much explanation for a world. I mean, I've read enough fantasy books for this podcast and like sci-fi novels where they just kind of drop you in the middle of nowhere and you just have to like pick things up really quickly. Um, so I don't really have a problem with that, but I still had so many questions that were unanswered. Like there's this world, like they're in our world. This is urban fantasy. So this is like, this takes place in a city and you have supernatural creatures like elves and goblins and uh, tanukis and fox spirits. But I'm like, where is the, like, where is the divide? I know they can't, you know, interact with mundanes, but like, I don't really understand like how their societies are separated. And uh, L used to work as an agent for Roland and Riddle, which is like the company that not company, but it's like the it's a company, but also like a multinational, like governmental, like. See, that's a thing. That's another <laughs> thing. I was like, is this governmental? Like, how does uh the economy and government work in the supernatural part of the world. There were just like a lot of questions that were like, I know that I should have just gone, just roll with it. But (laughs) like in the back of my mind, I was like, this is stuff that should kind of be included in details. I mean, for me, I feel like it's just in lots of, especially science fiction, the corporations are also governments. And in our world, the corporations do operate as governments in some places. Like there are, governments that pretty much run like corporations so to me it just felt like it's it was not an amalgamation but like this is the company that runs everything in the fey world like capitalism has taken over the magical world and it's run by this one company run by like the king of fairies oberon yeah but in in terms of like the fey world i'm like you have all these creatures but i don't really quite understand like their um yeah i just like felt there were holes in the world building because I just kept coming up with like questions being like, how do they like, how do they survive? Like, like I said, like this is a corporation, but also a government. Like, what do they do um, in what do they do in relations to the mundane world? Like, what are what kind of missions do they take on? L, like she used to be an agent, but now she like works in a lazy girl job where she's trying to be mediocre to not get attention but i'm like what kind of missions did she go on and why is there a temp agency what does the temp agency provide so there were a lot of questions that i had about this world and i guess that's probably the main divide between how we approach it because i just didn't ask those questions or i just assumed those questions like i filled it in with my own imagination but i didn't like care that the book didn't explain like spend time explaining that to me i I think you know definitely this book wasn't not that it wasn't interested in exploring those, but it just wasn't interested in putting a lens on like the greater world. And I can see that if you were curious about that stuff, how that would be frustrating because there is a lot of stuff that the author alludes to, but doesn't really flesh out. So yeah, I I can see that. Yeah. Like I said, I don't need a lot of explanations, but I do feel like those details are important. So I just wish like there were just a couple of scenes where you just saw more glimpses of how this organization worked as opposed to just i mean we see luke work on these dangerous missions and i'm like okay i get the high level job that he does but whose benefit is it for like is he protecting the mundanes from uh supernatural attacks is this kind of like buffy the vampire slayer is this kind of like men in black like i I think it's more like from what i read it was more to protect like so there is this veil of secrecy like the mundane world does not shouldn't know about the magical world so he's there to like take care of rogue magical beings who are threatening that um and as well as do dirty work like wet work for his boss so it's kind of a mix of both both like dirty work and also like work to keep the secrecy alive. Like kind of, he's pretty much a hitman, right? Like he's sent out to like apprehend or kill dangerous elements, um, collateral damage be damned. And so um, the way that I read it is he serves the company. And so he serves the company's interests. So it's not really to protect, but the company's interest is in keeping everything secret. 
At least that's yeah, how I read so, it. Yeah. Which kind of makes it like a government, but um, yeah. I just need like a little bit more context, I guess. <laughs> I think that yeah. was like my ma- that was like my main uh, criticism about the world building. Also, I felt like the structure of the book kind of caught me off guard as well because um, maybe like twenty, like like maybe forty percent of the the book, like you kind of reach the climax, like you have like a final battle kind of moment. And then you realize that you have like so much more left in the book. And I was like, wait, what is happening? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the book is told in two arcs. And I can see why that might be disjointed. I think for me, it's because the central arc of the book isn't the conflict with Elle's brother, but it's the romance between Elle and Luke and them kind of getting to the point where they can both escape from the bonds of their family. One of the central themes of this book, and you know, I think this is where it ties into like the, the Asian American or the immigrant story, is like the tension between your obligations to your family and your obligations to your, your own dreams and how the, where you separate that. You know, Elle is someone who feels guilt, uh, familial guilt, and that's why she limits herself, whereas Luke experienced a different type of guilt. Like he made a mistake on a job and in order to protect what he has left, he has to like do shitty things. Right. And that's kind of, um, they're both under the thumb of like terrible parental figures, but I guess we can, we can start with the first arc, right? The first part of the book, which is where we're introduced to the characters, um, where I feel like this is, you know, this book is really more about their relationship than anything else. So, um, like the world building, I think I was able to forgive some of the world building lapses because um, I was more in, invested in where the characters are going, their individual stories, right? Um, so that's and- interesting because I feel like the development of Luke and Elle's relationship, I was I was actually quite disappointed because <laughs> I felt like there wasn't enough tension. Um, I mean, at first, I thought this was like a workplace romance, but you don't really see uh, Elle working. And um, even though Luke has a mission that, you know, will endanger Elle and her brother, Tony, because they have a murderous younger brother who wants to kill them to get like full control of the family magic. I feel like there was like no urgency and they fell in love really quickly i mean they were pining for a while so you get that context in the beginning but they get together real fast they bang real fast and then i just feel like there wasn't enough conflict for me to feel more invested in this relationship i actually really dug that there was no like conflict because these are two people that already liked each other at first there's a slight misunderstanding in the middle but these are people that basically the story is about them removing the obstacles between their love for each other. Because at the first, like they were already kind of like, if there was no guilt, there was, if there was nothing else standing in the way, he would have asked her out already. They would have already been together and they would have had a pretty like good and like relatively healthy relationship, right? Like for me, I didn't need them to have that much conflict. Like to me, I like the fact that the conflict is kind of how the world just like, kind of screws them over because of the expectations and guilt that it places on them. So yeah, that's, I think, that's interesting. Okay, so like, I think, I think the reason why I feel like, you know, I do like feel good romances where there isn't a lot of conflict between, like, I, I do like healthy relationships, don't get me wrong. But um I guess this is where bitter medicine leaned more towards contemporary than fantasy with urban fantasy in like strictly genre trope wise. The stakes are usually pretty high. It has um, there is a ripple effect when it comes to the main character's decisions. So it affects the world or affects like their family. There are like very dire consequences and you have a lot of action scenes and you get clues that there are going to be consequences but like I said it just feels like it lacked urgency and because it was kind of straddling like two different types of fantasy like I don't know it just felt very off kilter to Hmm. me 
I I didn't see that. I, I actually really liked that. You know, these are just two awkward people trying to figure things out. But I it feel was, like if that was going to be their relationship, like all throughout the book, it should have the book should have leaned more towards a cozy type of well storyline they're also thrown into this world where luke is like a john wick right he is a magical john wick he is the most badass like cleaner like fixer for um roland riddle and he's you know he hates that he's good at his job but he's really good at it um and he has to keep secrets because of that like it's kind of like the you know the secret agent and the regular mundane trope except they're both kind of secretly really good at what they do um i don't know i i like the tension between like they're both keeping secrets from each other but they both really like each other and so they're trying to like figure each other out right like you know luke does put things together at some point but i don't know i i really enjoyed that tension i really enjoyed that relationship um i guess you know just different tastes i guess um i mean i guess we can talk about the 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 ways that the fantasy tropes um manifest in this book right because you know magic is there, there's magic in this world but the way that you engage it is different like i kind of like that this was like an interracial or intermagical relationship in more ways than one not only in like the cultures but also in like in the ways that each person like views magic like there's overlaps but at the same time you have immortal elves and fairies and then you have like descendants of gods yeah i always like it when um you have different supernatural cultures like colliding with each other. Um, Cause like one of, one of my favorite scenes in the book was when Elle was explaining how her real name isn't used the same way as um, European elves and fays are bound to their real names. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole concept of true names is like a very like Western, like magical thing, right? Like if you know the true name of something that you can make it do whatever you want. And I liked how that is like how Luke was bound to his really shitty boss. And like his boss was really like Oberon, the fairy king is like the most white racist fantasy person like ever, right? Like I like how Mia wrote him as the most despicable colonizer. Um, that also has a ton of power. Yeah, I mean, Oberon was the main villain of this book. You would think that it's the murderous younger brother, uh, Yiwu, or William, but he doesn't really show up all that much in the book. So, yeah, yeah, like, that's kind of where, that that's another criticism, too, that I have, but... Um, I mean, Just, we can talk about that. I mean, so we, we mentioned okay. that the book has two arcs, right? So, you know, we know that both Elle and Luke have their own, like, shitty power situations, right? Like, Luke is under the power of his boss, who not only, you know, employs him, but also has, like, basically has him, like, under a slave contract, right? Um, and Elle is under the power of her family and the weird way that her family dynamics run, which is, you know, her family is descended from the god of healing. and But then only the eldest sibling gets all the power. And so, and unfortunately for her, her elder sibling is a lazy ass who doesn't want to do anything. And so the younger brother, who is actually probably the responsible one, eventually like had enough and decides he needs to kill his two older siblings in order to fulfill the family like mission which is to heal people um and so that's what sets him off on his murderous rampage um and his arc gets resolved like halfway through the book which i was actually surprised too i was expecting him to be like a final stage boss but he's actually just the mid boss um but i don't know i feel like it worked because this is a dual narrative and Elle's story isn't overcoming her brother, but it's kind of overcoming her need to serve her family and her, her like guilt for like not being able to um, do that fully. Right. Um, I think in the second arc, when she loses her powers because of the way things turned out with her brother, I thought that was a really cool, like second act where it's like, okay, now she's lived her life being the most powerful in her family. Now she has no power. How does she cope with that? And how do you cope with that? as someone who lives in both the magical and mundane world. Um, yeah, I, it was surprising, but I, did, I didn't hate it. For me, I thought 
I thought Yi Wu was kind of a weak villain. And I understand that Oberon was like the main antagonist, but because so much of Elle's like internal conflict is with like her family and expectations and the situation that she's put in because of her younger brother, I just felt like I wanted to see more of their relationship shown on the page. Like you get flashbacks, but not really concrete scenes, in my opinion. And um, I mean, one thing I did like about Elle was even though she is the middle child, I definitely got like eldest daughter syndrome from her where she feels responsible, where she has to put her family's needs above her own um, and, you know, shelter her brothers from like their consequences of their decisions. But I didn't quite understand like, okay, well, she's supposed to be the most powerful in her family. Um, but I don't really see the extent of her power. I mean, she does, you know, try her best to hide it, but because I don't really see it until, you know, she tries to keep her brother alive when he's hit with an attack. I'm just like, okay, I kind of wish I saw more of her ability to see like how much she loses when she loses her power. And um, yeah, I guess I like wanted a couple more scenes where you see the younger brother um, come into direct contact with Luke, have a little bit more conflict uh, so that it puts Luke and Elle in really uncomfortable positions because right because it just felt like once she found out that Luke Luke's mission was to take her brother down I like I just felt like it rolled off of her much more easily than I expected hmm I think again I didn't have a problem with any of those stuff um I feel like you know you believe that she's the most powerful because they tell you she's the most powerful in in the prose. But I kind of feel like the fact that she showed it by saving her brother from death twice. I think that that is where it comes out. But I can see how it might benefit from having a few more scenes where she kind of shows off her power. I mean, you kind of get a sense of that when the like the customized sigil that she makes for Luke saves his life from a otherwise fatal like monster attack right so you get the sense that she is like pretty high level like early on um i guess okay but like with that though like she like her magic her glyph saves luke's life in a dangerous mission but that mission is before the book starts you know like he gets bitten by a basilisk and he's like oh your magic saved me but i'm like that should have been in the book like that shouldn't have been like an after thought like i I don't agree with that i feel like that's fine being like in media res like it like he comes in because like he like i don't think that needed to be shown like in action i feel like it should have been shown in action because like i said it would up the tension and this is, you know, technically urban fantasy. So I don't know. Like, I feel like the starting point in the relationship, like, I feel like maybe chapter two, like, that's when he should have, like, given her the special ink. Um, hmm. You know, him fighting the basilisk, like, it would have been nice to see how the sigil protected him and saved his life. And then him having the realization of, like, oh, okay, like, this. Like, this is a reason why I need to, like, this is a reason why I need to, like, go back and, like, ask her for this favor. But also, she's very cute. And I'll just use this as an excuse to to get close to her. I don't know. I just kind of felt like that should have been in the book. I was okay with the not. So, I guess it's another difference in opinion. I feel like, I don't know. I feel like we got enough information to get what happened, but I didn't need to see it, right? And I feel like, I don't know. I just, okay, I have yeah. a question for you. When you read, do you see things play out in your in your brain? Like, do you see the scenes play out like a movie? Do I you do. see images? Yeah. You do. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Never mind. My theory has been shot down because <laughs> because I found out that not everyone is a visual reader. Some people like they don't see anything when they read. 
Mm. Um, They don't play things out like it's a movie. And for me, because I am a very visual uh, reader, I, I like to see scenes. And when things are kind of just told and not shown in terms of like, okay, like this is what the character is doing right now. I guess, but feels it, if I don't know, it kind of slows down my processing power. (laughs) That's interesting because when, during that scene where he did explain that he was saved from a basilisk bite, um, I did see that scene play out in my head of him being saved from a basilisk bite. So I think maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just, it's interesting. I, I can see your problems with it. I just don't have problems with those problems, I guess, is the, the fundamental like difference between our experiences. Um, maybe I'm just much more forgiving um, for, for this kind of stuff. Um, I don't know. It's interesting because it's, it's not the first time this, this has happened. So, um. <laughs> Yeah, this is not the first time where you and I have been like... Yeah, because this is the exact same... Um, like difference in opinion we had when we read we have always been here too which is you want it a lot more i guess um horror sci-fi yeah and i was fine with what the author gave me maybe i'm just like very like i don't want to say i'm lenient because when things suck like i think they suck but i i feel like i was more okay with the story that mia wrote and the way that she told it um but you know like i said i According to the reviews, like a lot of people do agree with your assessment as well. So I think it just depends on on the reader. Yeah, I mean, like also like a trope in in romance is, you know, like in act two or or in the beginning of act three, there should be a moment where it's like, will they or won't they? Like there's a moment where they break up and then they make up or they're at the breaking point. And someone needs to step up and apologize or, you know, do something to prove that they're really in invested in this relationship. And I felt like it was kind of missing, missing that like sweet tension. Like you think this is going to be a slow burn romance, but like I said, (laughs) it like picks up really quickly. I mean, the tension comes from external factors, right? Like, uh, in the second act, uh, or in the second half, Elle feels that she doesn't deserve to be in a relationship with Luke because she's lost her powers. And because she's lost her powers, she can no longer be part of his world because that's what the world has. Like, her entire internal conflict throughout the entire book is her sense of self-worth, right? Like, she always sees herself as, like, what am I worth to my family? What am I worth to, like, how can I, like, how do I make myself as small as possible to not stand out because my brother needs to be because I need to protect my brother or I need to like be the peacekeeper. Right. So once she loses her power, she no longer has the ability to do that. And, you know, I think Luke being the person who's like, no, I, I like you. I want to support you. It doesn't matter if you have powers or not. I think that was really sweet. And the, you know, the conflict for Luke was he's bound by Oberon knowing his true name and thereby being able to force him to do whatever you want because of the rules of, you know, the Western Fae world, which is if you know someone's true name, you can command them, like you can do a geese, right? A geese. And so like a lot of tension for that second half comes from like his interactions with Oberon, right? Like this terrible human, not human, this terrible elven like asshole forcing Luke to like protect a a sex offender, um, forcing him to like do stuff against his will. And the fact that Luke can't do anything about it because of the power, the way that this power structure works, um, and the only way to like break out is to like risk his own life and like destroy his own magic as well. And I, I thought that was a really cool like conflict. I think it's a cool conflict too, but I did have issues with the execution. Um, and like you said earlier, like, you know, Luke telling L like, Oh, I like you for you, not the ability uh, that you have or like your value to your family. I like you because of you. I think that's very sweet as well. But I feel like she should have been like, I can't be with you. And then there is a freaking break in their relationship because that would have caused more. Um, that would have been like more interesting to me as a reader and made, like made me like more, more, more invested. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you need you need to have pain sometimes to make your story um not more engaging but i guess for for this story i i think it would have benefited from 
having that conflict between um <laughs> the between the two lovers i mean the pain i felt was having to listen to Oberon spew his racist capitalist bullshit and the one thing that i wish this book did do more of is i wanted him to like you know of course he'll, he's not the type of person who will ever feel regret but i wanted him to get his just desserts and i get that this you know this wasn't where the book was headed but i did want like i, I wish they did do like a final like f you to to Oberon the, the fairy king i do wish that Oberon um put luke in a more uncomfortable position as like it's like, okay, you are looking for Elle's younger brother. You need to extract as much information as possible, get close to her, and uh, have like his agenda against, you know, Luke's feelings for Elle. Like, I feel like there should have been like more of a clash there. So there is like, so like Luke is like, okay, I'm bound because he knows my true name. I'm an indentured servant, but I really love Elle and I don't want to betray her trust. And I kind of wish there was like more of a back and forth with it. Um, and I will say having an abusive boss and trying to escape a toxic work environment, I feel like that is something that like anyone who's above the age of 18 can probably relate to. (laughs) And, um, you know, it, it matches well with, uh, how Elle feels with her family because she feels like her only value is, her powers, her ability to protect her, um, protect her brothers. And she does ask Luke at one point, who are you outside of work? Because this person who is cold and ruthless, like I do not recognize this person. And how can you be like so sweet and loving to me? Like when your job is like this. (laughs) Um, And, you know, Luke he feels like his only value is his ability to like do all these high risk missions. And it's like, okay, well in as a millennial, I can relate a lot to the feeling of, okay, where does my identity begin outside of family obligations and my value to, to work and, um, and all that stuff. So I did like that character trait. I will give that to Mia. Yeah. And speaking of um, Luke's high-risk missions, um, I did enjoy the chapters with the Wrecking Crew. Um, It did feel like the the book became a totally different genre. It became like Mission Impossible, like Special Forces spy thriller. But I did enjoy the banter between him and the rest of his team, who all hate him. But they're made up of really like an eclectic group of just like of jokesters who are really good at, you know, violence and, and espionage. Yeah. My feelings towards the wrecking crew was not, we're not positive. (laughs) Um, I feel like I didn't know them at all. I felt like, you know, compared to a lot of the other characters, I, I was just like, okay, like, why are you here? Um, I just feel, I don't know. To me, it kind of, they kind of felt like, throwaway background characters uh, compared to like Lyra and Tony. And I, I understand that like those two characters have more of a like more, more skin in the game. But I was just like, okay. Um, it really did make me question like what was the purpose of the Wrecking Crew? I like the Wrecking Crew. I thought those chapters were a fun like diversion. I like that, you know, instead of I guess you could have had just Luke being a solo operator, like kind of being more internal. But I did like the fact that they were in his ear, like trash talking the entire time. Like I I thought that was fun. Another thing that we diverge on. Um, I feel like if that is his normal crew that he works with, I wish I had like gotten to know them a lot better. Uh, Because for me, I was like, okay, like, the Wrecking Crew uh, consists of multiple characters, but in my mind, I was just like, it's just one person. I just considered the crew to be one character. That's interesting. And I kind of felt like each person, like they didn't get a lot of fleshing out, but I felt like they did get have their own distinct characteristic. Like again, like in the movie that played in my head, like I, I had a picture for each of them and like, you know, their voice and everything. So oh. maybe I play too much video games with like, 
like your Thursday. Excuse me. Excuse. You're making it sound like I don't play video games. I, I am like <laughs> an uncultured person. No, I watch anime. I play video games. I read books. I know my storytelling preferences. Okay, <laughs> and it just happens that they're very different from yours. <laughs> I dug them. I thought they were fun. Even as like a, an amalgamated group, I thought they added some interesting flavor to this world um, of like magical black ops, you know. Another thing that I really liked was the kind of more culturally specific inside jokes that um, that Mia included in her story. Um, I liked that whenever Elle was exasperated, she says skies because that is a literal translation to a very common um, Chinese exclamation, which is tiana, which is like another way to say aya, right? It's kind of like just like expression of exasperation that like made sense as a Chinese person. But I don't know if it like, it probably sounded more like more esoteric to like other non-Chinese readers. Um, yeah, and you know, that is something that I did really like about the book, how Mia didn't have translations for, you know, Mandarin and for French. In like her author's note at the very end of the book, uh, she says that like she wanted people to experience um, like she wanted to decolonize language in her book. And I thought that was like a really smart way of doing that because for me as someone who doesn't know French or Mandarin like I am not privy to like to to like their inner thoughts in those moments and even though it's not like super important to the story it's a way uh for the characters kind of to kind of like shut the door on me and be like you're not part of my community <laughs> and I feel like a lot of um and that's that's an experience that the majority, like English speakers, don't really experience today because English is the dominant language in so many countries. Um, yeah. And they believe that they have to be privy to all <laughs> information. Uh, so I thought that was, you know, it was an interesting experiment. Yeah. So I guess the last thing we can talk about is just the book ends with both Luke and L like breaking ties with their magic, like losing their magic by choice, and Luke choosing to live like a, a normal life where they can't, where they don't rely on like magical transportation to get anywhere. And I kind of like that the the ending was just them deciding to like just walk away from like this magical world that has given them nothing but problems, right? They're like just walk away from whatever is causing you trouble and just like focus on the the people that you you like. Um, I thought that was a really really sweet ending. Yeah, I think it's like a good message too. Yeah, I did like the magical transportation. I was like, <laughs> I need one of those. I would love to just be able to kind of yeah, take a train and just teleport to another country. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm flying to Europe at the end of the month, and if I can just like instantaneously teleport there, that would be perfect. But no, I have to sit in a, a flying tube for 13 hours instead. Oh. Oh, one thing we didn't really mention was the fact that, like, Elle and Luke, I mean, because Luke is half-elf, you already assume, oh, yeah, he's, like, immortal, or he has a very long life. But Elle also has a very long life. She's 126 years old in the book, but <laughs> she looks like someone in her 30s. And uh, I thought that was, like, really interesting because she's, like, so inept with technology. And I was like, oh, my God, like, this youngish looking person not knowing how the smartphone works and like doesn't know how like emails work <laughs> i thought that was a fun quirk yeah uh, it makes yeah. sense if you realize that she's actually a very old woman but um i also like the fact that like because you're long lived doesn't mean you're necessarily more mature you just have a longer period of like arrested development and you know like tony is older than her and he's just like a man child right i mean can you really blame him for not wanting to be what his family wants i mean people say that he's very selfish but you know i feel like selfishness is not a bad trait i guess in like western point of view i mean like their family selfish. sucks anyways and it's just it would have been fine if it wasn't for this added like magical rule that like he's the only one that has the powers right yeah yeah and like the scene where 
Elle is in the hospital and her parents are like, oh, you need to come home. Like, even though you're not magical anymore, you still have use to the family. Like, how did you, like, bring your brother back to life? And, uh, you know, she at first thinks that her family is there to, like, have reconciliation. But they're actually there to negotiate the release of the youngest son who got captured. And yeah, it's actually I was like, wow. Yeah, that's very like toxic Asian manipulative, manipulative tactics. Yeah, it's actually really interesting what Mia did, which is like on Elle's side, her her conflicts are with patriarchal views, this rigid rule based society and magical powers. Whereas on Luke's side is like his his conflict is with this figure of authority exerting power over him which is like a very western way to like exert power right western powers like to protect power whereas like you know eastern families use tradition and familial duty to like entrap you into doing what they want you to do yeah i kind of wish i got more background on how luke came into oberon's guardianship slash indentured servitude i know that luke was like raised in a convent because of his mom being like you're half elf and i don't want you to like feel i I, like i want to shelter you from the world by putting you in the holiest place so that like people's prejudices don't reach you i feel like they did explain that though i don't know i feel like it wasn't i was just like like Oberon picked him up because he's essentially one of his kin, right? If not his direct son, like one of his, like a member of his family. And he manipulated a young, naive Luke into telling him his true name, thereby giving him power over him. Like, I I, I felt like that was... Again, it's one of those situations where like that should have been a scene in the book and not just explained... I thought in like a paragraph. <laughs> yeah, and I think it was fine that was explained because I, I I understood what was put down. I mean, I understood too. I'm just saying that as a reader, I would have preferred it to have been like an actual scene rather than information that is kind I guess. of uh, given like, to you. You get enough scenes of like Oberon and his like callous nature that you can kind of see how that scene would have played out. Anyways, I guess yeah, that didn't bother me. Anyways, um, I guess before we call it an episode, we did get a um, comment on Goodreads, which pretty much aligns with your views. So it gets one more point to 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 your side of the the analysis. Um, Catherine writes, this story had so much going on and I lost interest early on. I was sluggish to finish this one. Um, I like the beginning, though. I thought the first time Ellen Luke had sex, it was a fun scene, just felt out of place to me. Up to that point, they had a K-drama relationship vibe, and it just felt weird. Um, but lots of consent talk, so that's cool. Ella went 0 to 100 explaining everything about her family. And unless I misread something, Luke was definitely sketchy. But that was quickly explained and all. Um, I don't read much fantasy, so it's just my lowly opinion. There was a great deal of world building, but I was just confused at how they all live in this world, interacted with each other. The commentary inside makes about language is the best part of this book. The way she handles the characters, speaking and weaving out of multiple languages was nice to see. So I think um, our listener, Catherine, pretty much is on your side, Rira. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people are on your side too, Marvin, because uh, this book has a rating of 3.73 on Goodreads, and it has over a thousand reviews. Uh, it was... It got a starred review on Publishers Weekly, and I've seen other Asian-American writers uh, say they really like this book. So, yeah, it's it's very diver- like divisive, I think, in terms of, you know, what type of reader you are and what your preferences are. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, reading books is a very subjective activity. So, you know, what works for some people might not work for others, but... No, overall, I I really enjoyed this book, Um, even with the surprise steamy scenes, which um, caused me a panic in the drive through lane. um, I really I really enjoyed my time with it. Well, I'm glad that you did, because when you said that, he was like, I didn't know that this was a steamy romance book. I was like, oh, I feel so bad for Marvin. I like, obviously, I have not read this book before, so I had no idea. Don't feel I mean, I wasn't I wasn't mad about it. I was just like. It did come out of nowhere, but only because I was not expecting. Like, I knew it was a romantic book, but I didn't realize it was a romance book. Yeah. 
Marvin takes a lot of hits for the team because, uh, you know, we do read romance books in this book club. And it's like, I know that's <laughs> not his main genre, but I am very grateful that he, you know. <laughs> and the funny thing is, like, it's been that way since the very first book. Like, the very first book of this book club, Heroin Complex, also has a surprise steamy scene if you're not expecting it. And so, you know, it's just, I feel like that's just the theme of this podcast. Um, ambush Marvin with sexy scenes. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it's not just me being like, I'm, I just want us to read sexy books <laughs> for this podcast. It's a surprise for me, too, a lot of the times. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, on that note, um, that'll do it for our discussion of Bitter Medicine by Mia Tsai. If you've also finished the book and have thoughts on either the story or our discussion of it, um, please let us know on either on Goodreads or on our Discord if you're a Patreon subscriber. Again, you can support our podcast by subscribing to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash booksandboba. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to, you know, hear what you think about um, the books that we cover and how we cover them. So before we go, I um, just wanted to announce that our September 2023 Books and Boba book club pick is The Family Chow by Lan Samantha Chang. It is a family drama that surrounds the Chow family who runs a long-running Americanized Chinese restaurant in the town of Haven, Wisconsin, who ends up under the spotlight when their tyrannical patriarch is found dead, presumed murdered, and his sons are the main suspects. Um, it's been a while since we read a book about a Chinese restaurant family, so I'm really excited to dig in. Um, the fact that it's also a murder mystery also adds to the, to the excitement. I'm sure there'll be tons of great intrigue and food descriptions. This book was the recipient of a ton of awards last year, including NPR and Wilkes Best Book of the Year, as well as um, featured on Barack Obama's 2022 summer reading list. So really excited to get into this book with all of you. And as always, if you've already finished the book and have thoughts about it um, that you'd like to share, please let us know on our Goodreads forums or on our Discord if you're a Patreon subscriber. As you've heard, we love to share the thoughts of our listeners on the podcast whenever possible. Well, with that, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Uh, thank you so much for listening to our discussion of Mia Tai's Bitter Medicine. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about The Collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Brian. Did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada is a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. 